Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Jen Lumenlon. She is the host of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which Lifehacker named Best Research-Based Parenting Podcast. Jen also runs a course called Taming Your Triggers, which helps parents understand why they feel triggered and to feel triggered less often. Jen holds a master's in psychology focused on child development and another in education. Welcome, Jen. Thanks. It's so great to be here. So your work is based on research, which we all know I'm all about that. I love the research. Amy is, Amy's love synapses it. are firing right Woo! now. She's like, I'm excited. did someone say research? <laughs> did someone say research? I've listened to so many of your episodes when it comes through loud and clear. <laughs> but what I really like about what you do is that some of your work is sort of about questioning and dismantling some research, sort of at least mm -hmm. calling out its blind spots. I wanted to start with this example because I thought it was so interesting in your recent episode about the Louise Bates Ames books, which almost all of us have mm -hmm. on our shelves, like your one-year-old, your two-year-old, your three-year-old, that they're not all bad, but it's an example of how some of the standard parenting advice that we all think is gospel is maybe not so much. Can you talk a little bit about your approach? Yeah, that was quite an episode. That was a solid two weeks of research. <laughs> <laughs> on my part, and digging through the University of California, Berkeley's archives. I think most parents don't realize is those books were published in the 1980s. And, and when they get recommended, people kind of say, oh, well, you know, you have to sort of disregard the outdated gender advice and ignore the parts that aren't useful to you. And the rest of it's really good. And it turns out that the research that those books are based on was actually done between the 1920s and the 1950s. <laughs> wow. And in a very specific cultural context, right, uh, where we had very different views about what it means to be an inclusive society <laughs> than most of us do right now. And so the person who was doing the research, Dr. Arnold Gassell, that those books are based on, is coming at it from a perspective of we want to understand what the average child is experiencing. Because if we strip out all of the effects of poverty and racism and everything else that some children experience, and we look at only at middle-class white children, then we will understand what true natural development is. And then all we have to do is get the poor parents to parent their kids the way that middle-class white parents are doing mm. it. And then everybody will be better off. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And to me, that's a really problematic approach. <laughs> and parents don't realize that when, when they're looking at these books, that's what they're getting, right? They're getting this parenting advice that's based on research from this period of time that's 100 years ago. It's not something that if we are looking for a society that is truly welcomes everybody and where everybody truly belongs, it's not possible to strip out the problematic gender stuff because that stuff is baked into the very research that those books sit on. And I think that the parents don't really realize that. And my hope is that if we do see that, then we can look at each child and say, what does this child need? Rather mm -hmm. than comparing this child with this theoretical middle class white child from the 1920s that you know doesn't exist. Well, and I think that's really important. If I'm listening to this, having no familiarity with the topic you're mm -hmm. talking about, I might think, oh, I can do that for myself. I can strip out. I understand. Yeah. I can recognize racism. I can recognize gendered stuff. Yeah. But that your point is that it really gets down into like what kind of child is fundamentally desirable and that you may not have and I, let's say, may not have a perfect child who plays quietly. I mean, believe me, we've talked before on the podcast about the idea of the child who sits in the square at preschool being the only test of a good preschool child. And I was I was two for three on children who would not sit on the square. And so it's not this lofty sort of political argument that you're making. It's a very practical argument that this sort of parents an imaginary child fundamentally. Absolutely. And that by comparing our child with this imaginary child, we're doing our own child a disservice because invariably doesn't match up with that. You know, in the episode, I almost liken it to a horoscope Yes, where you can look at last week's horoscope and be like, oh yeah, that kind of fits. The horoscope's real. I just have to ignore all these other bits that don't really match. <laughs> And so they're about as accurate as a horoscope. There's enough there that you can say, oh, yeah, that, that really fits my child. As long as I disregard the, yeah, my child isn't actually doing these other five things. And so, yes, it does our own child a disservice. And it also does all children a disservice in my opinion. So in 2022, the CDC actually took crawling off its list of milestones that pediatricians should no longer. It was, there were several things they took off, but the sort of headline one was mm -hmm. crawling. We're no longer going to measure for or tell parents that your baby needs to be crawling by like, you know, in X months, nine months or whatever it said. So that's sort of proof right. that scientific opinion can evolve, can change its mind. And, and that that can be a good thing. Do you think that was a good change? Was that a good removal of a milestone? It does all the time because because what does having that standard do? Right. All it does is makes parents worry. Yeah. <laughs> that my child isn't crawling by this certain age. I looked at a bunch of studies on all kinds of topics from movement, like what milestones should my child be doing at certain ages related to gross motion development to potty training. And if you look across the body of research on, on any of these topics, all you see is disagreement. You see so much disagreement in what even should the stages that the child is going through be, right? If, if you don't uh, prop a child up to sitting, then the stage where the child sits and then topples over doesn't exist <laughs> because mm. the child can just sit up by themselves and then they don't fall over because they have the ab strength because they got themselves there. Same with potty training. There's like 27 signs that a child is ready to potty train and zero agreement on how many need to be present and which ones need to be present. So if all we have a disagreement, why are we basing so much of what we do around these arbitrary developmental milestones? But let me ask as a parent of a child who had subtle developmental delays that were hard to pick up and that I do think some interventions were helpful yeah. for 
getting at an early age that I was glad we kind of caught this issue of developmental delay when we did, that those markers for picking up on those developmental delays were these kind of textbook milestones. So how did those two ideas meet? Where do they come together? Yeah, I love that you're asking that question. And that's actually something that's very close to home for me at the moment. I discovered through the course of researching podcast episodes that I'm autistic. Wow. (laughs) And I had no idea. Nobody had any idea. Because, you know, I'm textbook case of I do well, right? I did well in school. I'm a highly productive, focused individual. There's no reason that anyone ever suspected that I would be autistic. And it turns out I really struggle socially. So if anybody had looked to see, is this child having a hard time, right? Not necessarily comparing me with an average, but is this Mm. child having a hard time? And Have we tried everything that we can think of to adjust the environment, to shift how we're interacting with this child in our home? And is that helping, right? In my case, it wasn't a sensory thing, but many children have sensory struggles, right? Have we already addressed all of the sensory challenges that our child may be facing? And is a child still struggling? And if so, then we can look to, okay, what else is going on? And to me, the whole concept of a diagnosis is very difficult because it sort of assumes there's normal neurotypical people on one hand, and there's non-normal neurodivergent people on the other hand, when I see it as much more of a continuum, that in some ways I don't struggle at all, in other ways I struggle a lot. And for different people, it'll be completely reversed from the ways that I struggle. And all of that gets lost when there's two buckets of people, the neurotypical Mm -hmm. people and the non-neurotypical people. But I really see that the way that we should be looking at this is what is going on for this child or this child's needs being met. And if we're seeing them struggle, that's a sign that their needs are not being met. And that's where we need to start looking to, you know, what can we do in the home, uh, in our relationships to meet this child's needs more often? If we still can't do that, then that's when we're going to start to look for for therapies, interventions, and so on. You know, you had said that my favorite part of those Louise Bates Ames books and the thing you sort of said, like, ah, this part does kind of hold true, is that your child, a child, switches back and forth between periods of equilibrium and disequilibrium. And these books are sort of like six is easy, seven is hard, and then eight, they're easy again. It's clearly not that simple, but it has, you know, held true in my life. And I found it comforting to read like this is supposed to happen. They're they're going to round the bend and be really hard for six months and come back. So it seems to me like that's a milestone. What you're saying is that if there's only disequilibrium, right, if there's never a correction where they are well adjusted then that's the milestone you're looking for, for them to sort of return. Yeah. And and also, is there sort of general struggle, right? Like, does it always seem hard? So some people don't necessarily go through the, the cyclical. It's just like it's hard all the time, right? Like my kid is always hitting me. Well, why is that? That's the real question to ask. When I start working with parents, their first question is, you know, how can I get my child to stop doing this thing that's driving me up the wall? <laughs> and my first question is, well, why is the child doing this thing that's driving you up the wall? Because that's what we need to work on, not the how to get them to stop. The unmet need that underlies that behavior that they see the only way that I can express that behavior is to hit you because I I don't have the language or the mental capacity to be able to explain I'm having a really hard time at school or I feel like my sibling's getting more than I am and I'm feeling jealous, right? They don't have the capacity to be able to explain that to us, so they hit us instead. I want to talk more about that specific aspect of your work. When we get back, we're talking to Jen Lumenlin, and we'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew. And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro (laughs) aunt at this point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, 
I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So this idea of behavior is something that we talk a lot about on the podcast and how to get at what's beneath what's sort of triggering behavior is it's obviously a concept we've discussed and we've mostly heard about as parents. But taking the example of a child who's hitting, it can be hard. And I think it can feel to parents like, I got to add this to my list too. And now I'm getting hit in the face and I have to like do this deep exploration. Sometimes with a kid who is not very verbal or has trouble communicating their needs. And so for a parent who's facing that kind of situation, where do you start? And how do you start in a way that doesn't feel like I can't do this, (laughs) which I'm very (laughs) sympathetic to? Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I'm writing a book at the moment on the intersection of parenting and social justice. And the, the basic idea is that um, we, we have all these social challenges out in the world on one hand, and we're struggling with our children's behavior on the other hand. And it seems like those two things are unrelated, and I see them as intimately related. And the ways that we interact with our children today will shape how they go out into the world. And in the book, I came up with the idea of this needs cupcake. And so when we start thinking about needs, when we start learning about them, we can find lists of needs online. There's usually like 70 things on that list. And it's how could I possibly know which of these 70 things my child is trying to meet at any one time? Right. And what I realized is that the vast majority of the time, our children are expressing and have very few needs. And so it's very often the same three to five needs coming up over and over again. And I call that the cherry on top of the cupcake. 
And so for each child, it's going to be different, but commonly it might be something like autonomy, right? I want to be the one who gets to, to make decisions over what happens in my life. Connection with the parent. Uh, safety would be another good one. Joy and movement, right? I want to play. And so we're seeing these things come up over and over again. And then underneath the cherry is the frosting. And there's kind of the next five needs that they most often have. And underneath that is the cupcake, which is kind of everything else. And so when we're thinking about our child's needs, we don't have to do this in the moment when it's like, my kid's hitting me, what could their need possibly be? We can do this mm-hmm. now, today, when right. <laughs> we're having a This is always hit. good, right? Don't do it in the moment. When you're getting hit, you're not talking about the cupcake. No, that's never the time when you're going to figure out anything super productive for the first time. It's very difficult to learn something when you're in a stressful situation. So take a pen and piece of paper and just draw a little cupcake and draw the cherry on top and just think about what needs is my child most likely trying to meet uh, most often? And then underneath that, what are the next three to five? And then underneath that is all the other possibilities. And from there, we can stick it to the fridge. And in that difficult moment, we can, if we can't remember, we can look at that and say, oh, autonomy. They want to decide. They want to be the one who gets to make this decision. Is there a way I can meet that need and also meet my need for whatever is going on, right? Because that's where I think a lot of parenting advice kind of falls down. It's like, let's meet the child's need, but well, my need just falls by the wayside. No, I see those two things as equally important and we need to find ways to meet both of our needs. So let's talk about that because we did an episode about breaking patterns where we talked about trying to do something differently than maybe our parents did with us or even that we've done in the past. And we were sort of discussing. Yeah, I thought that episode was really cool. We discussed in that episode whether we can ever truly change our reaction. The reaction is reaction. You're not going to be able to change that, but you can change your response. You can you can slip a piece of paper in there. So I want to talk about, I guess, both how do you put that piece of paper in there or is there actually a way for us to start changing our responses? Um, yeah, I love that slip of paper analogy because I think that that implies a very, very thin <laughs> space, which seems doable, right? <laughs> we like doable. Very, very, we very like thin. very doable. Yes. Yeah. So I think that that moment is the critical moment and creating that space where we can breathe, where maybe right now all there's enough space for is the words that are about to come out of my mouth are not going to be helpful and I can't stop myself from saying them, right? That's where a lot of parents start. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes, okay, I have enough time for a half breath and then I'm still going to say the thing that I'm going to say. And then it becomes a breath. And in a breath, you actually have time to think and to check in with yourself and with your child and say, what's really going on in this situation? And some tools that I found really helpful in that moment to make that cause bigger are something like wearing a hair tie on your wrist and transferring it over to your other wrist Mm. when you're feeling dysregulated, because it takes a couple seconds to do that. Having the hair tie there reminds you of your intention. Why am I doing this work? Why is this important to me? What's important to me? My relationship with my child is the most important thing. Okay, I'm feeling dysregulated. I'm feeling tension in my shoulders, my chest, wherever I hold that tension. I'm noticing those signs and I'm using that moment to transfer the hair tie over. Okay, what's really going on here? We're having a hard time, right? (laughs) So to be super practical about that, you're saying basically my tween comes downstairs after I've been cleaning all day and making dinner and doing things for and says... Where is my thing? You always move my things. And my reaction is going to be like, you in great. Let me tell you and give you the list while I scream about all the things I've done. Just pulling Mm -hmm. this as an example. I mean, of course, I would never do this, but someone (laughs) tempted to say, somebody else, you in great. Let me scream at you all the things I do. And how dare you speak to me that way when I'm blah, blah. The moment 
I have the hair tie on my wrist. I'm going about my day. The moment the kid emerges with the obnoxious statement, that's the moment you're saying, I go to my hair tie. Yeah, yeah. Because that break in the action makes me say, I'm in control of myself, whether or not this tween is in control of themselves. Yeah, I am a little hesitant to use the word control because I think control is sort of a veneer. Yes. Like parents are like, I need to be in control. When actually, if you peel that back, there's a whole lot of fear underneath yes. there about what might happen. <laughs> yes. So I try not to use that word control. But yes, your, your teen is coming out of their room and, you know, you move my stuff and immediately you notice tension somewhere in your body, right? Can you point to where you would feel that tension? My shoulders would probably be it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm thinking about it. So your shoulders are Rolling my shoulders. Yep. Just (laughs) thinking about it is making my shoulders go up. So so as soon as you notice that, then you're going to see your hair tie, remind yourself of what's most important, which you may choose to say to yourself, my relationship with my child is the most important thing or whatever resonates for you. Right. As you're moving that hair tie over, you're taking that deep breath. And from there, it's like, okay. If my relationship with my child is the most important thing, how do I want to respond? And it can be helpful. I don't like scripts because they don't meet our needs because we all have different needs. So how can a script possibly identify your needs? But a starter script can be super helpful. So if we come out with something judgmental like you always or you never or all the judgmental stuff we say, then it just, you know, it keeps the conflict going. Whereas if we say something like, oh my goodness, you sound super frustrated, right? You're observing something. Or it seems like you're having a really hard time right now. Or if you're already dysregulated, it seems like we're having a hard time right now. So this is not your thing you need to fix. This is our thing. This is our thing that we're going to work on together. Yeah, that makes sense to me. There's so many more questions I have about this. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Jen Lumenlon. Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own. And today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty-calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero-gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while 
still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. So you're talking about the most important thing is the relationship with the child, which I like that. I'm going to put that with my hair tie. Uh, I have I do wear a hair tie on my wrist all the time because I'm always 10 seconds. From you're already ponytail. halfway I'm there. Halfway there. You're, you're ready. You might want to change its color or something, yeah, something. To, to provide that visual cue. That I want to say, I thought you were going to say snap the hair tie yeah. on your wrist to like wake yourself up. This is so much less violent. You just move it to the other wrist. Right. It occurs to me, like, because you're saying that the, the relationship with the kid is is paramount and definitely I try to make that the thing that's paramount. But sometimes when I'm feeling triggered, and I want to talk about whether that's really like the right word for this situation. My paramount thing is like, you have to learn that you can't talk to me that way. Like I need to redistribute the the authority around here. Like you don't get to talk to me like that. I didn't talk yeah. to my parents like that. And this will not stand. That That becomes most important in my head, which is probably yeah. counterproductive to my long-term goal of more peace. What do you say when somebody's goal is, my goal is like, you can't talk to me like that. How do we sort of redirect that? That's not something to do in the moment necessarily. That's a, a much longer term work um, to look at where does this stuff come from, right? This stuff comes from hurt that you experienced when you were a child. That if you had ever said something to your parent that your your child has just said to you, that that was not okay. <laughs> it was not okay to express your your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions. And so when that's the model you grew up with, as soon as your child says that to you, of course it's triggering, right? That is trauma. And when you were alluding to the, the the definitions here, when we say triggered, we're specifically referring to something that reactivates a, a trauma that we have experienced. We, we can have a very similar big reaction uh, that isn't triggered by trauma. Maybe we are just super tired and super hungry and we're hangry and <laughs> all the stuff is happening. We haven't exercised and we can call that flooding. If it's related to some sort of trauma that we've experienced, then we can call it triggered. So yes, you, you experience some sort of trauma that is impacting your ability to show up for your child in the way that you want to. And I think that goes back to your pattern breaking episode where you talked about, can we really break these patterns? And you were arguing, I think Margaret was arguing that we can't. And I listened to that and I thought, oh, but I've seen it. I've seen it happen mm. because... The parents that I work with usually come to me and say, just give me the knowledge, right? Just give me the little nugget of information that's going to get me to stop feeling triggered and things are going to be better. And that's a cognitive shift. That's a shift that's happening in my brain. But what I see is that parents need a non-cognitive shift, which is a shift that happens in their bodies. And so it's like, uh, I don't just remember to do the right thing, to say the right thing, you know, trot out the right script at the right time. But actually, something is different in my body, in the way that I show up in these situations. And that comes from healing the reasons why we feel triggered in the first place uh, in community with others and processing that in community with others. And all of a sudden, it goes from, yes, I know the right thing to do. I can trot it out at the right time to I'm just different in my relationship with my child. Interesting. I think what I was arguing in the episode, and I think it may be there may be overlap in what we're saying to some degree, is that 
I guess I feel that my triggers, the things that trigger me, and it's not necessarily with my child. It might be with a parent or a sibling or people who I have longstanding patterns with, that the slip of paper for me works really well as an analogy because it's like that trigger is out of my control. The part of it that's out of my control, I can't change. The fact that someone might comment on my weight, let's say, every time they see me, and that is triggering for me as something I've tried to let go of myself, but I cannot control the fact that people want to greet me by saying, you look like you've lost weight, which I would love for them to stop doing, but that what I need to kind of control about it is that I can't control the input that I can only control my response, I guess. Are you taking it another step that I can somehow rid myself of the phase that I have a feeling about people commenting on my weight? Exactly. Yeah. I'm inserting a step in between those two, right? So Mm -hmm. yes, you're right. You can't change what somebody else does. You can ask them. (laughs) You can talk about your- You can ask them many, many times. (laughs) Yes. And sometimes it works and sometimes it does not. And yes, you get to decide how you're going to respond when they say that, right? Am I going to let it send me into a tizzy? Am I going to pass the hairband across, remind myself, this is not about me, this is about them. And from there, how am I going to respond to this? And in between those two things is the non-cognitive shift. And an example that I'd love to use is from a parent whose, uh, whose own parent was an alcoholic, right? The parent basically doesn't remember the parent that I worked with, you know, their, their childhood. And she said, I've been in therapy over this so many times. Therapist is always like, this is about your mother, right? And I'm like, no, it's not. How can this always be about my mother? And uh, she said, I knew I needed to forgive my parent, but I couldn't convince myself to do it. And it was through being in the Taming Your Triggers workshop and seeing hundreds of parents introducing themselves and saying, I'm triggered by this. I'm doing the best I can. I'm at the end of my rope. And all of a sudden, she sees her own mom as this struggling 20-something with a whole bunch of unresolved trauma. And she's like, I didn't convince myself to forgive her. I just became forgiveness. Mm. That's the non-cognitive shift, right? Mm. That That's the difference between trying to get somebody to say something different and controlling my response to them. That's the thing that happens in between those mm. that changes the way we show up in that relationship. And so now she's not carrying all the weight of that in every interaction she's having with her own daughter. Yes, she still feels flooded sometimes. Yes, she's not fixed completely. She still feels triggered sometimes. But she is triggered far less often because she has made that non-cognitive shift, which happens in community with other people. It was created in community, in relationships, you know, that the trauma was. So it makes sense that it's healed in community with others as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So the, the eventually the goal can be to become this profound stuff. It is profound stuff. And, and we can move beyond sort of, I mean, I always thought that slip of paper was like, oh, there I go. There's my shoulders. There's the thing. I'm feeling mm-hmm. it. Right. And just noticing the yeah. feeling already yeah. sort of cuts its powerfulness in half. Right. Like you like you stand outside. Which is huge progress. Right. Right. I mean, like, that's massive. Here I am really <laughs> being very angry about this and then reentering the moment, yeah. you know, with half as angry because you noticed you were feeling angry. But you're saying you can eventually right. maybe go even further to not feel as angry in, in the first place. Wouldn't that be nice? Right. Yes. Through the non-cognitive shift, which we can't we can't predict how and when it's going to happen. It happens differently for different people takes different amounts of time, right? This person happened on day one (laughs) where they see these introductions being made. 
for other people, it's when somebody else poses a question and somebody else says, oh, yeah, this is like this for me. And then I'm like, wait, that's a trigger for me. And I, I never realized it before. And so that, again, that being in community just kind of speeds up the entire learning process. So it's amazing. I'm just thinking about this as we're talking about it. I think that the shift in behavior, putting the piece of paper between can inform that shift you're talking about. Because going back to my example, when I first kind of drilled down and did some work on like, I'm not going to think anymore for the rest of my life about how much I weigh because it's something I spent too much of my life thinking about. And I'm putting that aside. I did that work for myself. But as I trained myself to respond to other people very neutrally about it, it made me feel less hostile towards them also. Like that informed, I think the behavior and changing the behavior, it takes the power out of it. And it does inform the shift that you're talking about to a certain degree, which is like, I'm not actually triggered as much as I used to be by people commenting about my looks or my weight because I've just gotten used to responding to it very neutrally. And I think it's helped make that shift. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and the key is to make sure that it's not that you're stuffing that down, right? It's it's not that it's still there and I'm just pretending it's not. Right, right, <laughs> right. That it just feels like, oh, the sting's coming out of yeah. it. I think it does. I think it does as I think about it. I mean, I, I'm literally thinking of it as we're talking about it. And it's not that deep. I mean, there's other things that I have that are <laughs> deeper that I'm probably just like, let's paper over that for now. But I think the practice of changing response can be helpful in getting you closer towards making that shift. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I guess I would point to research on mindfulness practices and specifically on uh, gratitude and sort of uh, loving kindness meditations where you're sending well wishes out to people who are kind of a benefactor, um, someone who's kind of uh, been you're in a good relationship with, a neutral person, a difficult person. And that sending those well wishes to a difficult person can actually change the way you perceive that person. And so, you know, yeah, I definitely see it the same way. Jen, I'm sure so many people listening want to know more about everything that you do. So start by telling us about the Taming Your Triggers workshop and then tell us about your podcast and all your work. Yeah. So everything I do flows through yourparentingmojo.com. And I've got a couple of things that may be of interest to uh, to your folks. And so the first of these is I know that my child not listening is a key trigger for very many yes. parents. Yes. <laughs> Amy agrees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cosine, cosine. Yes. So I compiled a list of 13 reasons why your child doesn't listen and what to do about each one. So for each one, it gives, you know, what, what's actually going on here from the super basic, they just didn't hear you, which you might think you yelled loud enough, but actually my husband has this amazing ability to ignore things happening right next to him. And sometimes our children <laughs> do too. So from that through to understanding the child's needs, the child's need isn't being met and everything in between. So 13 reasons why your child doesn't listen and what to do about each one. And so your listeners can download that at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash what fresh hell. And yeah. so, yeah, super, super special just for them. And then if they're interested in taking Taming Your Triggers, that is going to open up February 19th through March 1st. And uh, yeah, we, we basically walk you through where is this stuff coming from? Like we so briefly touched on Amy's example of, well, you know, where is this stuff coming from? My, I couldn't have said that to my parent. Well, yes. And that hurt. That hurt mm. you. So let's understand more about where these triggers are actually coming from and start the process of healing that. And also, let's learn these new tools, right? Let's learn how to create the pause and, and widen the pause and move into understanding what am I really feeling? What is my child really feeling? How can I identify my child's needs and also identify my needs so we can actually find a way that meets both of our needs? 
Um, so that's available as well at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash taming your triggers. Fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation. It really made me think. And we will link to Your Parenting Mojo on our show page. And Jen, thanks so much for talking to us today. You're welcome. That was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.